Hello there. Hi there, Lee. Hello, Kravarama. Oh, Lee, that was very formal. I know. I, you know, I, I have a formal thing that I would also like to get out of the way, and that is that last week when um, my father-in-law Brian died and I was in South Australia and children and family and whatever, and I had this whole week of things that were I couldn't that I was supposed to be in Sydney for, and including a speaking at a breast cancer charity breakfast thing, and you stepped in and did it for me, and that was the nicest thing, and I really thank you for that. No, oh, well, that's very nice of you to say, and completely unnecessary. Nave embarrassed me, and also, you've gone against... Shows when you had a mouthful of rocket. Exactly. Delivered that. <laughs> Just eating my lunch here, everyone. It's one of those delicious, easy salads. Rocket, cherry tomatoes, pear, blue cheese, walnut. Can't go wrong. Mm -hmm. um, you've also violated one of my principles in life, which is that I like doing nice things for people and nobody knowing about it because then I think you, I mean, not that I'm at all religious, but there is some well, scripture. The people about who are at the breakfast know about it. Well, yeah, but, but we don't, yeah, but now you've told everyone. But it's, Sorry. it's um, that thing, there's a scripture about it's better to store up your treasure in heaven. Right. So you can either have your reward here and you can have everyone knowing that you did an act of kindness, or I prefer to store up my treasure in heaven, even though I don't believe in heaven or God. I'll but, thank you again in heaven, by personal, <laughs> I'll be in the other place. But, you know. but I do think that what goes around comes around, so I just like putting nice stuff out there in the expectation that nice stuff will hopefully come back to me. And you do a lot of nice stuff for me. And also, you've now ruined my reputation as a monster. I to know, I feel like it's really been going that way, what with your, you know, frankly insane attitude to book ownership so anyway it was my pleasure it was my pleasure to do it and I was very <laughs> sad for your family's loss yeah there is like it's just been a really horrible couple of weeks of death being everywhere I went to Sam DeBrito's funeral yesterday mm. he's the Fairfax columnist who died very suddenly um 46 a day or so after my father-in-law which was a much more anticipated um death god it's there is no like you can have a great funeral for somebody who has died suddenly and prematurely, but it's never, you know, it's just the most deeply destabilizing event, you know. Like mm. I say, that it wasn't. It was his sister Kate DeBrito, um, who's the new editor at Mamma Mia, and um, his brother-in-law um, Luke McElveen, who's the editor of the Daily Mail. Like they were a real journo family, and, mm. and the. Um, the wake was like, oh my god, it was like an MEAA branch meeting, you know, after about four kegs, you know. Right. <laughs> and it was sort of this spectacular uh, wake. But, and they spoke really well and um, they did this great thing at the end of the funeral. It was, it was at the Paddington Uniting Church uh, on Oxford Street massively overcrowded. I mean, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people showed up. Um, and at the end, um, Graham Long from the Wayside Chapel did the service. He was really great. Um, and at the end, we all went outside, and as the hearse drove away, we all gave him a standing ovation, like a big round of applause, which is actually very touching, but mm. nothing um, removes that incredibly deeply upsetting idea of someone who's been removed too early from life. That is, I think, one of the worst things you can have at a funeral, that, that the feeling that it was sudden and young and that it was someone was robbed of their potential and that, you know, I always feel if I'm at a funeral like that almost angry that yeah. what's occurred. Um, it's less about him. Like, I didn't feel... Like, I feel like he was... Like, he was 
a completely full of life individual. I've never know. met Sam DeBrito. Yeah, well, I mean, you can sort of tell from his um, columns what he's like, you know, um, provocative, annoying a lot of the time, <laughs> you know, full of this kind of insatiable curiosity. Like, he was the sort of person you have a conversation with and he wouldn't let something go. Pretty by the end of it, you're like, God, let me out of this conversation. As um, Luke, his brother-in-law, said during a great eulogy and a very courageous one because he could barely keep his face straight, you know, from bursting into tears. But he said, I once said to Sam, you know, one of the reasons you're such a good writer is that you use up all your shit ideas on your family and friends. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great reminder. He really was a bit of an ear basher. I must yeah. say, just completely apropos of nothing, that Luke McElveen is one of the funniest people I have ever met in my life. Like, I've had, I haven't spent that much time with Luke McElveen. I had one uh, evening out at a dinner with him and yeah. also uh, David Pemberthy. Yeah, for the another very Telegram. funny guy. And I have talked about it for years as having been one of the funniest nights I've ever had. And also, when David Hicks was flown back to Australia from Guantanamo Bay, it was one of those things that when you're a journal on the road you do, which is you're waiting for something to happen and you end up yeah. standing out the front of somewhere yeah. for hours and yeah. hours and hours. And so on this occasion we were standing out the front of a prison in Adelaide and Luke McElveen was there and just kept me laughing for about three hours straight. He's as dry as oh, so dry, guy oh, and God, just so funny. So funny. He's, he's um, murderously funny. Oh, and a great writer too. Like, I mean, he if is. You, if you read yeah. the piece that he wrote about Sam, it's, it's very beautiful but also laced with this funny, this humour. He was telling the story at the funeral about, he said oh, he was out in the surf with, with Sam and um, noticed that Sam had a tattoo that says, um, you are water or it's all water. There was a very long explanation for that involving David Foster Wallace. Mm -hmm. But um, Luke said very dryly during this eulogy, as Sam moved into the tenth minute of his explanation... <laughs> It was a really great way of just <laughs> reminding everybody in the room as if they needed to be reminded how much that guy could bullshit on. Anyway, um, <laughs> One of the, um, you know, funerals, obviously, like weddings, you know, there's good ones and bad ones. I mean, there's probably never a really truly good funeral because mm. it's someone you're going to be missing. But um, I did go to one funeral where I came away feeling sad but also oddly uplifted, which was... The funeral of Gary Ticehurst, who was oh, yeah. the ABC helicopter yeah. pilot, and um, yeah. it was a, you know, easily the worst day at work I've ever had when the ABC chopper crashed and three excellent colleagues were killed. So I had to go to three funerals over the course of a week. Yeah. And um, Gary's was, oh, you know, Gary was this really larger-than-life sort of character. Yeah. Like, he was just a big character. Um, and he'd so his life had been big. He'd been a helicopter pilot in Vietnam and then he'd come back and he was a chopper pilot for the media and he used to shoot Sydney to Hobart every week and he'd shot sequences for films and he worked on The Matrix and shot all this amazing stuff when they shot it in Sydney. Anyway, as part of the funeral, they played some montages of stuff that Gary had done and it was just it was just absolutely yeah. incredible looking at it and just thinking, oh, my God, you've seen some stuff and done some stuff. And everyone also who worked with Gary always had stories about just Gary being Gary. Um, and he was also like, if he wasn't the cameraman, he used to love directing the cameraman right. and saying, zoom now. <laughs> camera operators just love that. Oh, they, they love like, it. You know, they absolutely love it. Like, um, he was also I remember once we were filming Kitchen Cabinet and my director, Stamatia Marupas, she's not my director, but I claim, you know, possession of her for this series. She was like, 
foodling about perfecting something. She's a real perfectionist, as I kept saying to her. There's a lovely shot here of these birds. <laughs> she kept just like, just didn't respond. And I kept saying it. And then eventually she sort of turned. And the look on her face was so spectacular. I just thought, oh, I have a giant pain in the ass, aren't I? I did this. My friend Lisa Miller's 40th where I was making a speech. And somebody was, um, I think, was I am seeing it? I can't remember. Anyway, somebody was um, recording. And I kept saying, are you definitely rolling? Are you doing it? Anyway, then I realised it's Ben Curry who's a really accomplished cameraman. <laughs> Have you done this before? <laughs> and I was like, and this is why the crews love working with me. <laughs> that micromanaging. Um, I, but yeah, uh, sorry, just back to Gary. I remember the other thing about Gary that, you know, was so lovable about him was that he just loved what he did so yeah. much. And I did not love going on the helicopter. And so if there was ever a helicopter, this was when I was a general news reporter, if there was ever a helicopter job, I'd be trying to beg out of it as best I can. I absolutely hated it. Anyway, this one day, I had to go down to Threadboat, which is about the longest chopper ride mm. you can do. You'd have to stop and refuel even on the way. Anyway, I was in tears when I got in the chopper because I just didn't want to do it. Yeah. And um, Gary, <laughs> Gary would always try to give me the best possible experience in the chopper because he just couldn't get why I didn't like it. <laughs> so he did on this particular trip. I'm so they were sure doing barrel rolls. <laughs> exactly. I'm sure it's highly illegal, but on this particular trip, he landed on the summit of Mount Kosciuszko because I said on the way that I'd never seen snow. And so he yeah, landed. Queenslanders, you're hilarious. <laughs> never seen snow. He landed. Let me get out and touch snow and make a snowball while he sort of flew off probably and the cameraman got some shots probably instructed to yeah. by Gary and um, then just stopped <laughs> picked me up and then we went and did our interview that we were doing and then on the way home he flew right down into this gorge and was basically skimming across the top of the river I mean I was just sick to the stomach Gary's like are you loving it are you loving it yet oh, <laughs> oh god for someone who's worried about nervous about flying here's how we're going to fix it <laughs> Like, oh. But anyway, that was so that that funeral was actually one of those ones where, um, yeah, you just sort of came out feeling sad and like it was a loss. But he, Gary was also in his sixties, so while everyone on that chopper crash did die too soon, he had lived a very full life yeah. and to that to yeah, that and point to, you know. to leave a life that's so you know, to, to, to have a life where you can plot the course of it and mm. see all these things that he produced. It's just, yeah. That's right. Um, they've just been, well, I don't know. Of course, you think about death and associated subjects when you have people um, near you who have popped their clogs in either in a timely or untimely way. And I started reading um, that Joan Didion book, The Year of Magical Thinking, oh, yeah. maybe because I just wanted to check out whether it would be the sort of book that would be good for me to give to my mother-in-law, who, who hasn't read it. Mm. This is Joan Didion's memoir about when her husband um, effectively dropped dead in front of her. And it was what they just got back to their apartment after visiting their only daughter who had been um, put into a coma with this, some sort of terrible brain hemorrhage. And so they're already massively stressed and worried about their daughter. They come back, make dinner, and he just keels over. And the book is about her recollection of grief and how and it's one of those books where you know she she starts by going obsessively over the detail of that night and what happened and and the things that she can't remember and the things that she can and it's there's something so fastidious about it and so touching it's almost it reminds me of you know preparing a body for burial you know like just this sort of love and care that she takes over recalling every single detail of that evening. It's such a 
spooky read in some ways. But I know that um, my friend Sue Dale, who was married to Matt Price, who died, you know, another just shocking example of someone who was taken too soon. Um, she got a lot of comfort out of reading that book. Um, and I, it's certainly um, quite a um, confronting in some ways, but useful book to read about grief, I think. Yeah, we talked in the past about books about the process of dying mm. and saying how you know, what a gift it is when people who are very articulate and good writers tackle yeah. these things. And so Joan Didion with that book, because she's such a wonderful writer and is able to distill the experience of what it's like to grieve, um, I imagine that there would be, for people going through something similar, you could read and go, yes, that's mm. how I feel. I reread that at the end of last year um, because I was writing a piece talking about how, you know, Think a few, a few things had caused me to think about it. One was, I think we talked about it on the podcast, the death of Philip Hughes, the cricketer. Yeah, yeah. That just the living, moment where the everything moment, changes. The moment where yeah. everything changes. And she, she writes, writes beautifully about that. That's yeah. right. She, I think in the first page of her book, there's a sentence, something like, a couple of sentences, something like, life changes, life changes in the instant. You sit down to dinner and life as you know it ends. Mm. And that's basically what happened to her. Um, and the Link Cafe was another one where it's just the collision of all of these tiny moments in your life where you don't see them coming. Like Sam mm. DeBrito didn't know that day that mm. this was going to be the last phone call he had or the last surf he mm. had or whatever, mm. but they were. And, and, you know, the thing about life is usually, some people do know, of course, if they're terminally ill, but often for people who die, they don't know that this mm. was the last and final moments they're going mm. to have. And so I was thinking about all of that and so reread. Joan Didion's mm. book and yeah it's quite quite an amazing it's, piece of work. It's a real gift to know that death is coming like I mean when I compare you know the two funerals that I've been to in the last week and a half like so my father-in-law um, had terminal cancer and so you know we were all there everyone was there and there was an incredible grace to that that felt actually like a real gift at the time and it's something of which people who who's um family and friends die suddenly are just completely deprived and it was such an interesting experience because my see my grandparents um one of whom is still alive at 99 um my excellent granny um none of them died when I was a kid so I was kind of managing my children's reactions to all of this too yeah. but it was amazing how resilient they were and also how um much they accepted death in a really practical way. Like, um, we had this um, palliative care nurse who was there kind of every day, and she had this really great piece of advice, which I would never have thought of, um, because it was obvious that the end was sort of coming pretty soon. And she said, look, when it happens, because he died at home, which is what he'd wanted, when it happens, don't call the funeral director straight away, because they'll be around in half an hour and that'll be it. Like, don't feel like you've got to do anything until you're ready. And as a result, like, they didn't take him away for sort of half a day or so, and everybody had time to just be with him, which, given that we have this such a um, taboo about, you know, dead bodies, like you never see a picture of a dead body, you know, but that was a really comforting element of it, which I would never have imagined, and something that my children was, it was quite important to them too. Like, it was... Yeah, so fascinating. I found that really surprising how comforting that element was. Friends of mine too who've nursed parents through, um, you know, if, if they've had a terminal illness yeah. through the final weeks or months or whatever, um, have also talked to me about 
the fact that the moment when the person dies often is not the worst. Mm. Um, you know, the, there are other moments that are, can be worse mm. and that you, where you're grieving harder. Um, on a couple of occasions I can think where friends have rung me to say, you know, Dad died um, and we sat around the kitchen table and had a laugh after mm. it um, mm. because it was this sense of relief that yeah. it was over. Mm. Um, so it's a, it's a very difficult process because there's nothing in your life that really can prepare you for it and as you say it's not really talked about or spoken about very often um we talk so much about fighting death rather than yeah, accepting yes death. there's a real my friend emma um who's an abc colleague of ours put me onto this incredible podcast um it's it's in the love and radio podcast series it's called the living room and it's by um it's an account from this woman called Diane Weepert, who is, I think, like a filmmaker or something. Anyway, um, this, this podcast series is all about people just telling stories from their lives. And her story um, is so full on and so fascinating, and it's all about death. She tells the story about her apartment building in New York. And um, it's got this window that looks out to the building op opposite and for ages when she first lived there, the apartment opposite um, had their blinds down the whole time. But then new tenants moved in and it was this couple and they had the blind up all the time and she said they were a beautiful, gorgeous couple uh, and wandered around in the nude the whole time and sometimes were like doing it. Like, <laughs> she, she said it was really confronting because she said, I just had a baby, there was no sex happening in our house, it was just like, oh, go away with your trim figures and your, you know, your still alive desire for each other, go away, I don't want to see you. So funny because she'd be up all hours of the day and night with this baby and anyway. And then she tells the story about what happens to this couple opposite whom she's never met. Um, so they, they went away for a bit, like the light was on in their apartment but they weren't there. And then when they came back, they looked different. And after a while, it was clear that he was really sick. And over the course of this story, she watches him die. And she still never meets them, you know. And yet she sees this incredible story played out silently, but in front of her. And she became obsessed with them. And she'd be up all night watching them, you know, and he'd be in his bed who's bed bound after a while, and then his mother was there taking care mm. of him. Oh, it's the most, it's a really, like, I just cried like a baby at mm, some bits. The degree of her love for these two people, mm. even though she's creepily spying on them, like, it's so, you feel conflicted at all the points of this story because you think, oh, my God, you're such a weirdo. But then also the purity of her love and concern for these people was quite touching too. Oh, I'm going to leave this, here and go and listen to that oh, immediately. It's, it's, it's quite extraordinary. And anyway, I don't know, just that idea of experiencing a death using only, you know, one um, physical sense, like vision. vision yeah. yeah. If so, and there's at the end, you know, when that, ambulance came to take away the guy because she sees him die mm. she toys with the idea of actually going around there mm. and then yeah anyway it's mm. oh god it's fascinating that but, sounds yeah. amazing um i will definitely go out of here and go and track <laughs> that down that sounds yeah. phenomenal yeah now um that just the mention of sex reminds me 
<clears throat> I um, have just been catching up with, I've really liked a TV show called Masters of Sex, which is yeah. about Masters and Johnson. I might have talked about it on the podcast before. Yeah, I think you have. I've still not got around to watching it. Yeah, it's about sex research, sort of the earliest yeah. um, research into the physiology of yeah. sex. And I was sort of put off watching it because I felt like, oh, you know, I've heard that story, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But it's really well done and it's predominantly about um, the just relationship between Masters and Johnson and the complexity of the other mm. relationships in their life. And I think the thing that really elevates it is, and I'm sure I'm repeating myself from a previous podcast, I know. You know, that's allowed. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. It's part of our commitment to recycling. <laughs> <laughs> the guy who plays... Masters is the Tony Blair guy. Um, oh, Sheen. I would think last time I couldn't remember the poor oh, no. bugger's name. Michael, Michael Sheen. Sheen. Yeah, Mike. I know. But he who is... remembers him? They just remember his nose and, like, you look a lot like Tony Blair. He is a wonderful actor. Yeah, he, he really is. just absolutely something else. And so he's this really prickly character, but you still have this sort of empathy and sort of odd liking for him, even though there's not a degree. I couldn't tell you one likable thing about him other than that he's a very accomplished <laughs> sex researcher. <laughs> I wish I had a business card with that on it. Like, <laughs> I'm an accomplished sex researcher. Hello. Only, you know, Bettina Arndt can actually well, that exactly. off, really. Um, <laughs> and uh, speaking of other televisual experiences yep. this week that really rocked my world, Four Corners. Oh, my God. Let's – oh, why have we not got 40 minutes just to talk about oh. this? Okay, where are we going to start? So this oh. is with Michael Lawler and Kathy Jackson. I think it's going to go down as one of the all-time great episodes of Four Corners. It's just – Every drop of it is just unbelievably compelling. From the very start where you think you're giving it a what? You're giving an interview, okay? <laughs> and then then you see Michael Lawler's video diary, which is Well, and every second of the way quite just a cinematic episode, like Enterprise, sorry. No, I was just going to say, it's like sort of folding origami flower. It's like a Russian doll, right, where you think, you start by going, wow, I can't believe they've given them access into their house. Then they have handed over videos of their European five-star holidays. Where they're sort of going, the, thank you, hospital cleaners, as we sail down the, you know. And so then you're like, I can't believe they gave over their holiday video. Then it's like... I can't believe Michael Lawler's given over his video diary. It just is this layer upon layer of stuff that they've handed over that you are just mystified. It's it's a genre you and I have talked about very fondly previously, which is the fly on the wall that goes catastrophically wrong. But I don't know that they would have thought it went catastrophically wrong. It was the most richly bizarre television experience. I mean, I watched it. I didn't see it go to air live because I was sort of working. I had all this stuff to do. But then everybody was just so gobsmacked by it the next day that... Um, Including me ringing you at about 7.30am to go, Crab, have you watched Four Corners? And then when I sat down, it was just like, it was like a ritual. I knew that I would love this, so it was like, I prepared, I poured a glass of wine, I put my feet up, I was in jammies, I was just like, this is going to be awesome. And it really was like the greatest full body massage. Oh, completely. I was tweeting uh, Sally Dave, the executive producer of Four Corners. I don't know why, I just had a oh. feeling it was going to be really watchable, and so I was tweeting her photos of me at 8.25 with like a plate of cheese and crackers and beer and um, a chocolate pudding <laughs> and ice cream. Like, I had the full catastrophe sort of sitting down, ready to go. I've got a it whole was... page of notes. Santorini is where they were filming, right. they had their their holiday video, which turns out to be, you know, travel that seems to have been paid for uh, in at least Allegedly. heavy part by the HSU. Oh, my gosh. But why? 
It's this real question, isn't it? Like, why do people who are in the middle of a scandal think that it's going to be useful to do um, an interview? And I guess it's this, like, well, our side of the story is so unimpeachable that we'll just deliver it. And one of the real hallmarks of this whole HSU scandal, and if you think about it, we've sort of learned about various um, episodes of it um, uh, in a series. So first of all, it was Craig Thompson. Oh, Craig Thompson did what? You know, And Craig Thompson is sort of standing up in Parliament saying, well, I'm the clean skin, I'm the guy who was clearing up the union, I'm the good guy. And out of context, you're just like, what are you talking about, you lunatic? <laughs> but then you start learning about the other characters. So there's Michael Williamson, who's... You know, theft from the union is like vastly dwarfs that of Craig Thompson. You start to understand why, in this circumstance, Craig Thompson might deludedly think of himself as the good guy. And then the whistleblower, who's been praised by everybody from Tony Abbott to Christopher Pine as this sort of hero of the union movement, is sort of herself way down. Like the whole, it's the greatest tar baby ever invented this story. Like, you know. <laughs> I hesitate to even write about it because, you know, I feel like you write something yeah, about it and the next week you're like, I've got to be done for tax fraud or something. Like, it's just fine that I've mislaid, you know, a sort of giant bottle of Grange that the HSU sent me at some point. Like, you just sort of hesitate to even take eye contact with this yarn because it's so filthily so catchy. <laughs> discovered in a sexual bloody, you know, debacle <laughs> with a marmoset or something, you know, within a week of <laughs> just going anywhere near it. Not that I would suggest that the excellent lawyer who did. Uh, uh, it was truly, I had a very enjoyable coffee this morning with my friend Louis Eriglou, who's one of the best cameramen in the country. Oh, um, he's a genius. I know, he totally is. And he shot it. Yeah. So I, I just had, I just hammered him with It was so beautifully shot. That guy is an absolute legend because he, oh, he did some of that the killing season. Camera, camera work on the killing season. And even like, that was what made it such a great television experience, is that the angles and the, the choice of the shots actually worked so beautifully with what the story revealed. It was so articulately shot. Is that yeah, a, oh, not totally. really a word? Because he, I mean, you can't use the word in that context. Yeah. But his, in, his, his grasp of the story yeah. is just absolutely... Um, reeking from that story. Yeah, his ability, and all great um, artists and photographers and whatnot have this ability, which is to tell a story through yeah. just a visual medium, yeah. no words, cartoonists as well, um, and he's one of the best people at doing that. It's also hard to to shoot that sort of fly on the stuff wall is hard because yeah. you have to get them to forget, basically, that you yeah. are there rolling mm. the entire time. You can't obviously be rolling the entire time, so you, but you can't miss anything. So you've got to have this sort of spider sense, basically. Yeah. And then also, it's awkward. Like there was a sequence in that where Kathy Jackson was in the bathroom doing a hair, and he I was know. shooting it. I um, and so that is socially awkward yeah. to insert yourself into things like yeah. that. So it takes a certain stealing of yourself to actually yeah. even put yourself there. Yeah. And he, so he and I used to work together years ago in news. He is almost unparalleled at being able to get to the front of a pack or insert himself somewhere or get the shots no one else it's has. A, it's, an, it's a weird skill, isn't it? It it's is. A it really is like a sort skill. of spider sense or something. Um, so yeah, anyway, that was such a satisfying piece of TV. I highly recommend you go and get yourself on iView. 
We've been um, shooting this little series for our view, actually, as a sort of like a spin-off from Kitchen Cabinet, which is actually starting next week. <laughs> bang, 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 bang. Um, so, which is Wednesday the 28th, I think. Of, In case um, anyone missed it, October. Kitchen Cabinet starting next week, yeah. Wednesday, October 28th 8 at 8pm. After Lee Sales and before Gruen. It's a very Jeez. satisfying sandwich to be in, let me tell you. But um, we've done this little spin-off series too where, you know, how in Kitchen Cabinet we go to politicians' houses and, you know, see what they cook at home. We've done this little series called Canberra Al Desco where we just wander around Parliament and I go into politicians' offices and see what kind of tragic desk lunches they have. <laughs> oh, God. And I go, like, someone, and I won't say who because it's spoilers um, Yeah. Someone is having a meal that consists only of ice cream, Milo and Bundaberg rum. Oh, that sounds like Malcolm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, totally Malcolm. Ah, <laughs> uh, so um, that's gold. And I might add, sounds delicious. I know. Okay, it's got to be a queen. Let me let's see if I'm the right part. Like Queenslander. How how well you know your people, <laughs> North Queenslander. <laughs> well, um, or maybe Central no, Queensland or Bundaberg. It, yeah. Well, um. He's more of an urban type, really. Oh, um, okay, all right. But, uh, yeah, I'll watch with interest. But yeah. uh, definitely a Malcolm Turnbull uh, aligned is individual. It, oh, it could be. Is it Wyatt? He nope. would have thrown some strawberries in with yeah, this, probably. Yeah. <laughs> hilarious, though. Anyway, so there are some very funny moments oh, in that. Oh, speaking um, of hilarious, do you know what I did on the show this week? What? I had Chris Bowen on, yeah. and I'm going to say, welcome back, Chris Bowen. And I said, welcome, crap. Oh, right, okay, because somebody... <laughs> got a bit of a blast of feedback about that, and I just thought, oh, I'm more bollocks that she's carrying on with. <laughs> Chris Berry, wittily. didn't watch your show, sorry. <laughs> so I said, welcome, crap, and then went, oh, well, let's hope the rest of the interview goes better than that. And Chris Bowen very wittily said, oh, anybody could have made that mistake. <laughs> so I sent him a text afterwards and went, I am so mortified about that. I'm really, really sorry. Oh, come on, everyone would have loved it. Oh, anyway. Uh, now, we're nearly out of time, so have you got any other yeah. quick little uh, things you've been watching? No, I did some, um, I did a whole lot of baking for um, uh, the wake, and I was reminded of this great recipe that Tanya Plibersek put me onto um, in the very first season of Kitchen Cabinet. I remember the fish, that fish one. Oh, so good. Yeah. This is where you Tony just, Burke's you have, recipe. Yeah, this is Tony Burke's <laughs> recipe. But no, I was thinking about one of her little canapes, oh. which were um, cheese cheesy olives right mm -hmm. so you get an olive pitted ones are best like so you can actually just wrench the seed the the pits out or use you can even use green stuffed olives or whatever um but you make a quantity of um cheese straw pastry like so like just look up the recipe for cheese straws anywhere mm -hmm. like it's basically just a simple pastry short crust pastry with lots of cheese in it mm -hmm. and you <laughs> happy to say you pat it into a log <laughs> <laughs> you make it into a little roll, refrigerate it, then you cut slices off and you wrap the pastry around the olive right. and then you bake it like that. So mm -hmm. what you end up with is this hot olive in right. a kind of cheesy crust. It is so good. Yeah. yeah, it was yeah, it was Very a real good. big hit. hit, hit. Um, two quick last things for me. One is, I said last week there was about 8 billion episodes of television I wanted to watch and I didn't get to watch any of them except one, which was I watched the first episode of Please Like Me Season 3. Ah, great. I really like that show. It's both sad, melancholy, funny, it's got everything and love it. 
Uh, and also I read a book which if you are looking for a book, which probably you are actually given everything that's been going with you, if you want to just laugh yourself silly aloud and just yes. keep Jeremy awake by shake rattling the whole bed because you're laughing so hard, um, Natural Born Keller, which is Amanda Keller's memoir of just of her career in the media and all funny things she's done. She is a very funny woman she and the sure book is. is very, very funny. Oh, I can't wait. I'm let in, me tell in you, the mood for a bit of that. Let me tell you one funny anecdote. <laughs> so she's talking about with her radio show that she does um, now with Brendan Jones. Uh, she said, well, the best thing is just the listeners and the material that they give you when they ring in and say, you just work your own life into yeah. things. Anyway, she's having this bad hair day one day, so she's talking about it on radio and people are ringing in with tales of their bad hair days and this woman rings in and says I once had a haircut that was so bad that I took the day off work because I could not yeah. bear to go in looking so bad she lived on a farm so I was at home having stayed home a light plane has crashed in the paddock next door <gasps> and so oh, I've no. run out to help and that evening on the local television news is this local man ran across <laughs> Oh, it's full of, um, there was another oh, great one so where people good. rang in with parenting fails and there was one, I mean, there were just so many hilarious <laughs> ones, but there was one where parents had said to the kid, okay. hi, Jane, <laughs> we had an interruption, phone. my phone rang because I forgot to put we it on airport to interrupt us. <laughs> Without an interruption, it's too good. Anyway, um, the kids are complaining about the spider in the tent and the parents going, stop. You know, making up spiders in your tent. Stop complaining. Go to sleep. Just go to sleep. They go the next morning. In the netting above their beloved child's face is a funnel web. Oh. <laughs> anyway, the whole book's just gold. So oh, I highly recommend that to cheer yourself up. Yep. Right? All right. Um, uh, run, don't walk. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks for listening. Thank you.